0: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Caroline Ballard. Today on the show, we will look at the wide range of mishaps this year at Yellowstone National Park. One of the challenges that we face is helping people in an increasingly urban world understand what wild means.
0: More police officers are patrolling public schools. It either
2: works or it doesn't. And if you don't have the right person in there, it's not going to work.
1: Some of the world's biggest data companies, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook, have joined a new coalition that is pushing for easier access to renewable energy.
0: Plus, stories on energy in an interview with U.S. House candidate Ryan Green. He's a Democrat. Join us for Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News.
3: Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b.
0: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Caroline Ballard. An Oregon man is killed when he slips into a hot spring hundreds of yards off the boardwalk in Norris Geyser Basin. A Canadian tourist is fined $735 for picking up a bison calf that had to be euthanized. Another group of Canadians faces criminal charges for filming themselves walking on Grand Prismatic Spring. Penny Preston went to Yellowstone to find out
4: why people keep taking dangerous risks there. The steam vent next to the trail in Norris Geyser Basin is so hot, it surprises people walking nearby on the boardwalk. There are signs everywhere warning people not to leave the boardwalk or trail because the geysers, fumaroles, springs, and thin crust around the thermals are dangerous. Yet 23-year-old Colin Scott of Portland, Oregon, and his sister Sable walked more than 200 yards off the boardwalk near Pork Chop Geyser to a hot spring in the woods. Ranger Jessica Corhut got the call. I took over incident command and interviewed the sister who was on scene when the incident happened. A search team eventually found Scott's belongings near the boiling hot spring. But by the next day, there were no remains left for them to recover. Park historian Lee Whittlesey's book, Death in Yellowstone, describes several grisly deaths from people falling or jumping into Yellowstone's hot springs. One of the earliest thermal injuries happened in 1870, when a member of the Washburn Expedition was separated from his party without a horse or matches to start a fire. Whittlesey says the man was severely burned.
1: He fell into the hot springs at Heart Lake when he was lying near them, trying to stay warm.
4: Almost two dozen victims have died in Yellowstone thermal accidents, but people keep risking it. Yellowstone officials issued a criminal complaint and warrants against the four filmmakers who posted their walk on Grand Prismatic Spring. Dr. Jim Halfpenny, who is a scientist and educator, described another recent
0: risky incident. And I was in the middle of our group and I heard one of them say, no, no, get on the boardwalk. No, get on the boardwalk. Please get back on the boardwalk. And I turned and had five foreign tourists, a group of three and a group of two, and they were off the boardwalk.
4: In the canyon area, two rangers work to keep people away from a bull elk. One woman sneaks into a stand of trees about 10 feet from the bull.
5: You say everyone else is on the road? I need you to come down to the road.
4: In this place, people don't seem to get the concept of wild and the dangers that exist here. Yellowstone spokeswoman Jody Lyle.
1: One of the challenges that we face is helping
4: people in an increasingly urban world understand what wild means. Lyle is frustrated when reminded that many people blame the park for killing the baby bison picked up by Canadian tourist Shamash Kassam. Yellowstone National Park
1: is not a petting zoo, and we are not equipped to take care and nurse young animals. We're actually here to protect natural processes in the park.
4: And as much as it might be difficult for some people to understand, many bison calves die each year. It is not always foreign visitors or even tourists who make deadly mistakes in Yellowstone. A concessionaire employee died last year when he went hiking alone without bear spray off trail near Yellowstone Lake. He was killed and the park euthanized a grizzly sow presumed to have killed him. His death sparked new efforts to educate people. Park Superintendent Dan Wing.
6: We're starting a new campaign this year around grizzly bear and awareness that basically a bear doesn't care if you've hiked that trail 20 times before.
4: Wink pointed out the park is handing out large orange warning sheets to people as they drive through the entrances. Those warnings have a large picture of a man being tossed by a bison on one side and wildlife warnings in several languages on the other side. Visitors Max Alonzo and his wife were upset after they saw a group of tourists trying to feed a black bear sow with two cubs. They were trained to give a carrot to them. Alonso says he was concerned as much about the people as the bears. On his way to find wildlife, Alonzo says his car was almost hit at dawn by a speeding truck in the park.
0: But
6: when you see someone going 65,
0: I, I don't think that that's... That's good at all.
4: In May, a woman was hit and killed by a passing car as she walked across the West Entrance Road to get a better look at a bald eagle. Ranger Corhut pleads for visitors to obey the warnings. Uh, These kind of things happen, and uh, it's devastating, not only to, of course, the families that are involved, but also the folks that have to go in and rescue them. From Yellowstone, Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio.
0: Wyoming Democratic House candidate Ryan Green is a Rock Springs native who brings an interesting background to the race. Green actually works in the energy industry. He is one of two candidates seeking the Democratic nomination to become Wyoming's next congressman. He says he got into the race to help the energy industry recover and to create jobs. Green says you do that by diversifying both within and outside the energy industry.
7: We literally have an opportunity to be the nation's battery but we've got to sell the market what it wants and then i think we need to take it a step further and we need to begin to diversify wyoming's economy outside of just the energy industry you know the energy industry has been so great to my family and uh, so many families in wyoming but really i think it's unfair to expect one industry to carry the burden all the time and More industries in Wyoming would help level out these peaks and valleys, you know, and and we don't really even have to, you know, do anything new here. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. The the states like Ohio and Kentucky have done this. You know, they've been doing this since 1960. These are states that had one industry and um, they formed a partnership at the federal, state and local levels, and they were able to successfully bring their tax dollars back into their states for things like manufacturing and infrastructure, you know, for their exports. And they promote their small businesses. And uh, you're seeing a lot of the big, you know, manufacturers moved in as well. I mean, today, Toyota is manufactured in Kentucky. And a lot of those manufacturing jobs, they pay around $80,000 a year. And I think Wyoming's next congressman could lead that effort.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you just a little bit about being in this situation. We've had a lot of the Republican candidates come on and a lot of blame on federal regulations. And I saw that uh, as you came in today that uh, you released a statement uh, saying that it's it's not necessarily all the regulations fault.
7: Yeah, that's true. And just to be clear, I'm not a fan of these regulations. You know, a lot of uh, the other candidates, yeah, they're traveling around the state and they are using these regulations to really, in my opinion, scare folks. And, um, you know, coal's not going anywhere. It powers a third of our nation's, uh, electricity we get from coal. And, but we got to take a look at the market. You know, um, we can't just take a look at these regulations and blame, you know, the president. This is our third bust in 60 years. And we got to be honest, Obama was not the president for all of them, but our regulations don't touch China and they don't touch Europe. And these are some countries that are you know, they, they consume a lot of coal. And China is going to uh, decrease their coal usage by 10% by the end of 2017. So we've got to look at this. And I think, you know, using coal, uh, uh, these regulations really is damaging to the state. And it, it has, you know, real consequences if we don't talk about the actual, you know, conditions of the market. Because that's really the underlining problem. And when we look at this... You know, uh, it's a program called the RE100, and uh, you can find out a lot about it at uh, RE100.org. And this is very critical to understand this because 58 of the largest companies in the world have taken a pledge to transition to 100% renewable energy. So these are companies like Walmart and Starbucks and Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, Google, Nike – and it's important to understand this because Wyoming has one fifth of one percent of the nation's population. So we're never going to drive the demand. You know, we're not going to tell Walmart what kind of energy product they have to build or uh, excuse me to buy. And uh, and I don't care who your dad is or or what kind of background you have. The reality is, is these companies are transitioning to this. Most of them want to have it done by 2020. And so, a lot of these candidates that oppose renewable energy, they use Facebook to do it, and it's a renewable platform. So us being on Facebook and shopping at Walmart, you know, buying Starbucks and uh, wearing Nikes, we're all helping this transaction take place, and we need to understand that because these are the market forces at work
0: Ryan Green visiting with us, he's the Democratic candidate uh, for the u s House of Representatives you're you're talking about uh, this in a state, of course, where uh, we have some Republican legislators that want to tax wind energy more because they think it's affecting coal. How do you get the mindset changed in the state? I mean, you might want to do some work in Washington, but it seems like you got some folks back home here that you need to convince that renewable might be part of this energy mix.
7: Well, absolutely. and And again, you know, I'm I mean, I work in the coal industry, you know, it, it butters my bread. I have skin in the game. And so, uh, of course, I, I I support coal and wood at a federal level. But, you know, again, we've got to look at the market um, conditions, because I think, you know, the rhetoric gets you elected, but it doesn't do a whole lot of good for the state of Wyoming. And, and my fear really is that we're going to be in the same place in two years, in four years, or in six years. Now, you know, my heart goes out to those 465 miners that lost their jobs. My heart goes out to the 5,700 oil field workers that lost their job last year. And not to mention, you know, the thousands of people who have been affected because really it affects all of us. Mm-hmm. It affects the tire shops, the the uh, restaurants and the flower shops. All of us feel this when our energy sector is down. So we, we need to take a look at that market um, conditions. And really, we, we have an opportunity to put people
0: back to work If we sell the market, what it wants? Do you think in Congress and looking at our delegation right now that they have capitalized on maybe getting renewable jobs in our state?
7: I I don't. I don't, and I don't believe that um, the guys that you know the next group that's lined up for this is um, doing a good job of that either. I think we've uh, you know we're really holding on to our current market, and, and I agree with that to a point, but. You know, if we're gonna put people back to work and lead this effort, um that's really really what it boils down to. Do we wanna be a part of the growth or do we wanna watch it pass us by? And you know, to to talk about rolling back regulations and, and things like that out on the trail and we're going to roll these back and somehow put people back to work on November ninth, I think is, you know, it's misleading and it's unfair to the the
0: voters in the state. It's unfair to the workers. Talking to some of the candidates about the Affordable Care Act, and I'm I'm curious your thoughts on that. Uh, You like it the way it is? Are there reforms you'd like to see?
7: Yeah, the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. is six years old. And, um, you know, even Democrats are going to tell you it's not perfect. It's far, far, far from perfect. But it is the nation's health care system. And for the last six years, all we've heard is repeal and replace, repeal and replace without any replacement solutions. And so I think it's time that we start improving the system. And we, there's things we can do, especially with this Congress, we can do. You know, why do I pay twice as much for name brand prescription drugs as any other country on earth? You know, why can I get my car insurance from Chicago, Illinois, but I have to get my health insurance from Wyoming? And I think it's time that we end some of the gridlock in Washington to do our job to help the people. You know, um, we need better health care. And it's time we improve the system. And, you know, it's funny to me because we can't balance a budget. You know, Congress is in such a gridlock. Um, for the last 12 years, we failed to balance a budget, but we found time to vote 62 times on the Affordable Care Act without any results.
0: Ryan Green, a pleasure. Thank you for stopping by.
7: Thank you.
1: Coming up, we'll hear about a trade agreement that could benefit Wyoming that's being held up in Congress. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. Last month, President Obama took a historic trip to Southeast Asia to strengthen U.S. ties in the region and promote a 12-nation trade deal. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that Congress doesn't seem eager to even vote on the agreement.
8: Wyoming could bode well if the U.S. signs onto the 12-nation trade deal called the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it would lower tariffs on U.S. meat exports while also making it easier for energy firms to export gas overseas. While Wyoming's junior senator, John Barrasso, has never officially signed off on the final package, he supported a measure called Trade Promotion Authority that allows the president to fast-track the deal. Here's Barrasso back in March.
6: You know, I'm a free trader. I think trade's very important for the people in Wyoming. We hear it from our uh, cattlemen with regard to uh, liquefied natural gas and our ability to export energy products from the
0: state. We spend a lot of coal overseas. So uh, I've been a uh, working to promote trade, uh, to help our products at home.
8: And here's Barrasso this month when I asked him about whether his party, which is traditionally pro-trade, would vote on the measure.
0: I, I don't see any vote scheduled. We're going to focus on the appropriations bills.
8: Senator Barrasso also avoided saying whether he supports the package. So what changed? It's become political fodder in this presidential campaign on both sides. And you know, why do you want to make yourself more of a target? That's Virginia Democrat Jerry Connolly, who helped the president pitch the deal to skeptical members of their party. That's right. Even some of the agreement's biggest supporters don't want to see the package voted on until after November's elections. Connolly says it'd be foolish to wait until January to bring up the deal because presumed Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump and his Democratic counterpart, Hillary Clinton, have come out opposed to the deal. It is of concern,
5: yeah, that that obviously
8: the perception is trade is a liability in this campaign. Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis took a trip to the region this year. She says after meeting with officials in Indonesia, Japan, New Zealand, and Australia, she got a new perspective on the deal.
9: I went from being very lukewarm to it, to being a supporter. I'm I'm a supporter, uh, it, much to my surprise. And if I hadn't gone uh, on that trip to Southeast Asia, I don't think I would be as strong a supporter as I am now.
8: Lama says she knew that cattlemen back home wanted the deal, but she says the trip was eye-opening.
9: What I didn't realize until I went to Southeast Asia was the geopolitical importance of TPP. And specifically, there are countries that are very uncomfortable uh, and oppose what China is doing in the South China Sea, and their aggressive island building and moving a military presence into those islands. But they won't say so publicly.
8: Lama says leaders from other nations won't speak out because China is currently their largest trading partner. But she says under the trade deal, or TPP, the U.S. and Japan would be able to flex their economic muscle in the region.
9: They wouldn't be so dependent on China and would be more apt to speak out for these aggressive... Uh, positions that uh, China's taking in the South China Sea and elsewhere. So it became really apparent to me uh, that uh, TPP is tied to um, geopolitical benefits that are, go way beyond trade.
8: For that reason, Lummis wants to move quickly and have a vote this summer.
9: Yeah, I, I would rather not do it in the lame duck. I would rather do it before the election. Uh, but I uh, um, time will tell. It's, it's got to build some momentum so the leadership in both parties can even decide whether it merits a vote, whether it's late September or sometime in November.
8: With trade being a liability in election 2016, some analysts are predicting the next president will have to renegotiate the deal, which may prove impossible with U.S. allies in the region who don't want the deal changed anymore. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington.
1: Earlier this year, on a conference call with investors, Cloud Peak CEO Colin Marshall shocked those tuned in with a frank admission.
10: As we look forward, it is clear that the
0: dynamics of the coal industry have permanently changed.
1: Continuing, he said that coal will no longer provide, quote, baseload power. Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce explains why that admission was so shocking. Baseload power, simply put, is power that's always on.
3: Historically, it's been coal and nuclear plants running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, supplying electrons to the grid. Baseload power is considered the backbone of the electricity system, a guarantee that the lights will stay on. That's been a major selling point for the coal industry, which has argued that without baseload power, the grid will become unreliable. After all, how could wind and solar keep the lights on when they're so inherently variable? Given that backdrop, let's hear Colin Marshall again.
0: Where coal used to provide baseload generation, it is now much more variable, dependent on power demand, renewable output, and the price of natural gas.
3: So the CEO of one of the nation's largest coal companies says he doesn't expect coal to provide baseload power in the future. What does that say about coal's role in keeping the lights on? Is baseload power really necessary? I posed that question to Jesse Morris, a principal in the electricity and transportation practice at the Rocky Mountain Institute, a sustainability think tank.
11: I think the answer is no, at least from my seat.
3: Morris justified his answer with two examples of islands that run largely on renewables with backup diesel generators.
11: In that system, and dozens, maybe hundreds of other microgrids across the world, they're already running without baseload power. So those are some kind of microgrid examples. Now let's talk about the U.S. In the U.S., the concept of baseload power, frankly, doesn't have to do so much with technical requirements or uh, even the market at this stage. It's very much a regulatory decision.
3: Let me summarize Morris's first argument on that front. He says the U.S. grid grew haphazardly and, as a result, is basically a bunch of isolated islands. If the whole grid were more interconnected, it would be easier for power to flow where it's needed. In the unlikely event that, say, there's no wind in Wyoming, but there's too much solar in California, utilities in those states could buy and sell power from each other, something that's difficult today. Morris's second argument... We're thinking about power supply and demand the wrong way
11: we've focused on using the supply side of the electricity system to meet fluctuations in demand if we're looking at a hundred percent renewable system we have to flip that that mindset on its head we basically have to do everything we can to help demand match up with the renewable supply so this demand flexibility can provide be delivered by a number of different Things Right. You can send price signals and hopefully people just change their behavior. You can program your nest to turn on and off at the right time. And so you can make sure your electric hot water heater charges from the grid when there's excess wind or solar production online. But but suffice it to say the way to achieve a largely renewable system is to focus on the demand side and encouraging flexibility there versus the supply side, which we've done in the past.
3: Ideas like expanding the grid and introducing more flexibility into when we consume energy are actually already being adopted by the power industry. But Morris acknowledges the idea of entirely doing away with baseload power is still pretty fringe.
11: I don't think it's widely accepted at all. (laughs) Why not? Massive reliability problems, uh, potentially. Um, that is a very real concern and a very very real risk. And I I think that's one of the arguments that um, someone would make, is that you always have to have some sort of supply backing that up. And I agree with that. But Morris says that's a solvable problem. There are a lot of different options, and you can make them renewable. Hydrogen is an option. Huge investments in energy storage are an option. Dramatically oversizing your solar or wind resource is another option. But what about if we think of fossil fuels as that option of last resort? So these power plants become our energy storage solution for that one or two weeks a year when we don't have enough of a combination of renewable resources.
3: That combination of solutions struck me as potentially very expensive. So I asked Morris, if we move away from a system with baseload generation from fossil fuels, is it going to be prohibitively expensive? His answer was two-part. He says, generally speaking, modeling by the Rocky Mountain Institute and others show getting to a system that's 60 to 80 percent renewable wouldn't significantly change the overall cost, up or down.
11: But as you move to increasing levels of renewable penetration, let's call it 60 to 80 percent renewable penetration, Um, if done in the right way and investments made on the demand side, um, it's it's not. I'm being very careful in how I answer this question because I'm, I'm dramatically generalizing. But in most of our work that we've done, it, it's not a dramatically more uh, or less expensive system. It, it's it's roughly at cost parity with uh, kind of where we are at today. As you move from, I'll use a real number here, 80% to 100%, it's kind of like losing those last few pounds if you're thinking about weight loss for the crude analogy. It gets harder and harder as you get from 80 to 100%. And by harder and harder, I mean more expensive.
3: So between reliability concerns and the potential costs, how does Morris make the argument to skeptics that it's possible to ditch baseload power generation while keeping the lights on?
11: Baby steps. In Hawaii, this is obviously a question that they, in a a skepticism they had at least 10 years ago, now you have 20% of households with rooftop solar on them and the lights have stayed on. But at a certain point, luckily, there are enough examples now, domestically and internationally, and lessons learned in terms of how to cost-effectively move to a system that uses more renewable energy, that
1: you're not on your own. That was Jesse Morris, a principal in the electricity and transportation practice at the Rocky Mountain Institute, speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce. <laughs>
0: Coming up on the program, we will look at conflicts surrounding school resource officers and a push by large companies to change the country's energy landscape. This is Open Spaces.
1: You're listening to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. Data released this week by the U.S. Department of Education shows that Wyoming schools refer students to law enforcement at rates twice the national average. That's in the wake of high-profile tragedies. More schools hire armed police officers to patrol their hallways. As Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports, these student run-ins with the law have unintended consequences. In the 2011-2012 school year,
12: Wyoming ranked fourth in the country for sending students to cops and courts. And Cheyenne's
2: Johnson Jr. High School referred students to law enforcement at a rate 15 times the national average. I started at Johnson in the fall of 2011. Manny Fardella is a school resource officer, or SRO, with the Cheyenne Police Department. Johnson was a busy school. You know, they did have a lot of disturbances, fights, and there was some drug activity. There was a whole bunch of things going on. Students were reported to police 88 times that year. But Fardella says things have changed since then. Every single year, we have had a drastic decrease in negative behavior. I think Johnson has made remarkable progress and our numbers are way down. New data shows that the school logged just nine referrals two years later, but the reductions in
12: contacts with police were not the case everywhere. The referral rate at Rock Springs High School tripled during that period. Fardella says numbers will go down only when officers are properly
2: trained to build relationships with kids and work closely with school staff. It either works or it doesn't, and if you don't have the right person in there, it's not going to work. And then when it doesn't work, you have negative results from that. University of Wyoming criminal science professor
12: Thomas Mowen sees a lot of negative results.
6: You have law enforcement agencies who are pushing the SRO agenda and saying it increases safety. There's absolutely no evidence that that's the case. In fact, the, the evidence is on the other side, and that is by putting an SRO in the school, you're inflating the arrest rates.
12: There are officers at about 32 percent of Wyoming schools, slightly above average. Wyoming boosted school safety and security in the wake of the killings in Newtown, which Mowen says doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
6: Your odds of being involved in a school shooting are similar to being struck by lightning, and yet we're, we're making policy for something that is extremely rare.
12: And Mowen says researchers in his field have found that school resource officers actually have negative impacts on education.
6: There's tons of research that shows that these security measures are related to lower student attendance, higher dropout rates, higher pushout rates, lower SAT taking, lower grades. I mean, pretty much every negative outcome, there's a straight line to at this point in the literature.
12: What's the, what's the upside to SROs in schools if there is one?
6: There is no upside to having SROs in schools.
12: Mowen says SROs often criminalize normal childhood behavior. Students face charges like defiance of authority and are funneled from the classroom to the courtroom. And the data shows that students of color and those with disabilities are more likely to have run-ins with police than other students.
6: We've seen a massive increase in inequality in discipline because of schools adopting formal criminal justice policies.
12: In Wyoming, schools are twice as likely to call the cops on students with disabilities. This year, a mom in southeast Wyoming will call Karen because she fears using her name could lead to retribution from her school district, says she got a call that her eight-year-old son with autism was acting out at school. So she hopped in her car.
3: Even though I was on my way, they decided to call a police officer to intervene.
12: Some SROs showed up just after she did and restrained her son. Karen says he was terrified.
3: Why is the go-to reaction to behaviors that are a known result of his disability to bring in an officer? Being confronted in the middle of an escalation by... Someone who's an authority figure and who has a weapon on them and who is trained to deal with criminals, you know, not, a, not an 8-year-old.
12: Karen's son had another run-in with an officer when he tried to walk out of school during the day. The local police department says officers do attend one week-long training that includes some information about students with disabilities. But Karen says police presence only made things worse.
3: My child is now afraid of police officers. He views them as someone who's brought in to scare him or deter him. And he, at this point, would not ask a police officer for help.
12: Wyoming is one of 38 states that does not require school resource officers to have any specific training on how to deal with kids. But Cheyenne PD's Manny Fardella is trained and even trains others around the country. He says that training is critical,
2: and good SROs must be understanding. One of the biggest things that I always stress when I teach an SRO class is the question of why. We have to dig deep and find out, really, why is the student doing what they do? That's typically not the mentality for
12: cops who come straight from policing the streets to policing the schools. Next week, we'll hear from some school resource officers in Green River who strive to do their students more good than harm. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank.
0: These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: Some of the world's biggest data companies, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook, have joined a new coalition that's pushing for easier access to renewable energy. Through that push, they're trying to change the nation's energy landscape, even in states that haven't fully embraced that change. Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports.
3: At Greenhouse Data in Cheyenne, energy efficiency is an obsession. As I enter one of the company's secured data vaults, Art Salazar, the director of operations, asks me to pause in the entryway.
5: So uh, we'll need you to stomp on that a few times.
3: That is a clear rubber mat with a sticky, glue-like finish. My boots leave dirty imprints on the mat, which as Salazar explains, is the point.
6: Dust is a huge concern of ours.
3: That's because dust makes electronics run hotter, which then means using more electricity to cool them down. And for data centers, the goal is to use as little electricity as possible, because it's typically company's biggest expense.
6: This is the cloud. You're standing right in front of the cloud.
3: The cloud, where you upload photos and stream video, it's a real, physical thing. And at Greenhouse Data, it looks like rows and rows of glass and metal cabinets, chock-full of humming electronics, and colorful cables, all fed by enormous black power lines snaking along the ceiling of the room. All those electronics whirring away in their cabinets consume an enormous amount of electricity. Greenhouse data used 15 million kilowatt hours last year. Wendy Fox is the company's communications director.
11: The electrical resources of the planet are finite, but our need for data seems to be infinite.
3: Statistics compiled by Inside Energy show in 2013, data centers consumed 2% of all U.S. power, triple what they consumed in 2000. Fox says as the sector grows, it has a responsibility to do it sustainably. At Greenhouse Data, that means purchasing renewable energy credits to offset the mostly coal-fired power the company uses from Wyoming's grid. Similar credits are how many tech companies have managed their carbon footprints in the past, but now that's changing. Larger companies are now sourcing more power directly from renewables. Brian Janis is the director of energy for Microsoft, which owns Wyoming's largest data center.
0: Direct sourcing is important to us because our goal is really the transformation of the electric grid.
3: That's right, the transformation of the electric grid. So how is Microsoft planning to achieve that? Well, to start, not alone. Microsoft is teaming up with dozens of other companies, including Facebook and Google, to push for easier access to renewable energy. Their leverage comes from the fact that they are becoming larger and larger energy consumers.
0: We're going back to our utility every year and saying we're going to consume more power next year than
6: we did the year before.
3: Janice says that puts data companies in a unique negotiating position with utilities and the states that want to attract their business.
6: We want to influence
0: policy. We want to influence Uh, the availability of these resources.
3: And it appears to be working. In Nevada, a data company was able to convince the utility, NV Energy, to build new renewable capacity for its project. In Virginia, Microsoft has negotiated an agreement for a new solar farm. In Wyoming, Microsoft has already invested around a billion dollars in data centers. And Sean Reese, the director of the Wyoming Business Council, hopes that's just the beginning.
12: We
11: want Microsoft to continue to grow here. And frankly, we want some of their competitors to be here in the state of Wyoming as well.
3: But while Wyoming has great renewable energy potential, very little of it has been tapped. Wyoming law makes it difficult for companies to directly invest in renewable energy. And the state's utilities don't offer renewable energy tariffs to companies. Reese says the state needs to overcome those barriers if it wants to continue attracting data companies.
11: The markets are changing, the technologies are changing, and the state's got to keep up with those.
3: Or risk losing out on business from one of the nation's fastest growing sectors. For Inside Energy, I'm Stephanie Joyce.
0: Ernest Hemingway is almost as famous for places he lived and visited, like Paris and Spain, as he is for his writing. Now an article in Big Sky Magazine reveals Hemingway's Wyoming connections. The article's author, Darla Warden, became a Hemingway fan while attending high school in Sheridan. And as she tells Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer, the Sheridan area has its own Hemingway connection.
5: I was in college sitting on a bar stool at Last Chance Bar in Bighorn, Wyoming, and I noticed that there was a photograph of him over the jukebox.
13: You know, and I think of sort of the sketch of Hemingway's life, uh, obviously, when things of Paris, Spain and the Civil War, maybe Cuba, but Wyoming came as a surprise.
5: Yes, I think it surprised a lot of people. I had a lot of comments, um, especially from Wyoming natives, that said they had no idea and not only that he loved Wyoming, but it was key to him that he finished A Farewell to Arms there and mailed it from the Cody Post Office and then came back there every other summer until the late 30s. And then sort of when he, his marriage was falling apart, then he sort of switched allegiances and then started going to Sun Valley. So, you know, that was a good 10 years that Wyoming was his summer retreat.
13: And of course, uh, Hemingway is famous as a drinker, uh, as well as a writer. He was here during Prohibition for the most part, uh, but he wrote a short story called Wine of Wyoming.
5: Right. And that took place, that story, you know, based on something that really happened. You know, he uses real people and real stories, but then changes them and makes some fiction. And that story supposedly was about someone in Bighorn who made wine. So, on his first trip to Wyoming, he drove up and stayed at Folly Ranch upon the Red Grade outside of Bighorn. And then, when he picked up Pauline from the train station in Sheridan, they went up to Spiro Wigwam. And Spiro is now part of Sheridan College. And his cabin is marked there. And this summer, on August 13th, I'm going to do a writer's retreat there just for a day.
13: And that's an offshoot of work that you do in Paris, where you have for a number of years now hosted the Left Bank Writer's Retreat.
5: You know, it's funny. The Wyoming Connection runs through this story because um, it started one summer when I wanted to work on improving my French and following Hemingway's step from a movable feast.
13: You know, what strikes me, Darla, is the symmetry to all of this. You discover Hemingway in high school in Wyoming. Uh, Your passion for Hemingway takes you to Paris. You run this writer's retreat in Paris. And now this summer, you return to visit Hemingway's spots back in Wyoming.
5: That's so interesting because I, I never really thought of it. Like, it's full circle. And the funny thing, too, is as a high school student, I worked at the Sheridan Inn every summer and had no idea that Hemingway had stayed there and worked there. And so it's really exciting. I get goosebumps every time I discover something that's another Wyoming connection. I visited his cabin in Grand Teton National Park and saw where he came that first summer and fish. And it's kind of thrilling because we haven't read a lot about his Wyoming passion and you know, as a Wyoming native, I love Wyoming, and, I, and it makes total sense to me. You know, he was such an outdoorsman, and, you know, Wyoming is spectacular. So I think it just was sort of a, you know, when he discovered it, he just was so passionate about returning every summer.
13: Now, for you as a writer and, and for the writers who participate in your retreats, what is it about retracing the steps of a literary giant like Ernest Hemingway?
5: I've thought of this so many times and asked myself, is this some crazy obsession? Why do I feel so inspired when I stand outside his apartment, you know, in Paris or when I'm sitting in the Luxembourg garden? Why does that inspire me? And for me, I just keep thinking he arrived in Paris without any creative writing credentials. He had written for a newspaper and been a journalist, but he was really struggling trying to make a break. And he just worked on creating a different style of language while he was there. And I just keep thinking, like, could someone do that today? I mean, are there writers that are doing what he did almost a 100 years ago? And also, he inspires me to improve my own writing. I really do try to take, you know, the message of simplicity and showing, not telling, and the um, – tip of the iceberg technique, all of that. I think any writer can improve modeling themselves with some of his tips.
13: And so maybe you've already uh, anticipated and answered my next question, but what is it about Hemingway that's so enduring uh, still today? I mean, he lived from 1899 to 1961 and was in so many ways a man of his time, and it's a time that's not very much like our own anymore.
5: That's such a good point the point that he was a man of his time because, you know, he takes a lot of critic- There's a lot of criticism about him, his personal life, but that criticism, I always think, you know, people judge the writing, not the man. It was a different time in the world. As far as his writing being relevant today was so much talk about content, 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 you know, and I think writing standards are slipping. And if people really took the time to model what he talked about in his own writing, which was, you know, using one word instead of two, writing words that you don't always have to go to the dictionary. I mean, he he used words that were accessible to readers. And that might be why I loved him in high school, because to be a child insured in Wyoming, it was crazy to me, like, wow, there's a writer out there that writes about things like our life here, hunting and fishing and adventures and It just was something that I could totally relate to.
13: Darla Warden is the author of an article on Ernest Hemingway's Wyoming in the 2016 fly fishing issue of Big Sky Magazine. We have a link to the article at our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. Darla is also currently working on a book about Hemingway. She joined us from her home in Denver. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Micah Schweitzer.
1: we'll wrap up the program with poet Laurie Howe. This is Open Spaces. listening to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. Laramie poet Lori Howe wraps up our program. She has a new book coming out called Voices at Twilight*.
10: Bosler, Wyoming. Where the cold arm of the snowy mountain thins to wrist and river, Bosler's people changed into antelope. Locusts and rain ate the paint from her walls. Now vacant stores sell beds for ghosts, and the school instructs winter in the habits of crows. Foundations flake away like yellowed pearls of glue in photo albums, memories of a youth in which everything is still to come, the roads ahead wide open and going everywhere, bathed in a technicolor shine almost certain to endure. In Spanish, the word naufragio means shipwreck, and sobreviviente, survivor. Here on the edge of the sage, TV, antennas, and broken light bulbs broadcast stories of some hardy few who clung on longer to Bosler than most. They wait for the golden eyes and lonesome smoke-filled voices of trains— their cars stacked like children's blocks in red, green, and blue, the only riot of sound and color left here, on the border, dividing nothings. Now the wide, empty pavement and glassless windows stare back, mute chronicles of a long-forgotten rapture, not a single willing tongue left to sing of a prosperous heaven or its soft and verdant grace.
0: That is poet Laurie Howe, who's joining us in the studio, who has a new book of poetry out, Voices at Twilight. Laurie, nice to have you back on our show. Thank you.
10: Thank you, Bob.
0: So tell me a little bit about this book. What's what's its theme?
10: This is a book uh, of poems, photographs, and historical essays about the ghost towns along Wyoming's Southern Corridor. And uh, I, I was working on a completely different project, and then one day I... I was part of a group that went out to see Old Carbon, Wyoming, one of the ghost towns in this book. And I was so moved by that experience that I changed my MFA thesis completely and embarked on a tour of of Wyoming's ghost towns and um, writing and photographing and researching them.
0: Want to give us another one?
10: Sure, thanks. Old Carbon, Wyoming, Part 1, 1869, The Seamstress. Family lost to ship death, one by one, I watched faceless sailors heave my blood over the rail, into the foam. The night I turned fourteen, I cut my curtain of hair with a knife, washed my dead brother in rainwater, and took his clothes. I worked the railroad as a boy, helper to the Gandys until my curves gave me away. Now this place, carbon a flat stretch of baked earth, the stink of coal in every stitch, every bolt of cloth, every piece of laundry flinging darkly out from taut wire. Nothing here was meant to last. This town is a faint scratch in the desert, a mercantile with its last seamstress in the graveyard, dead of childbirth and her needles lying idle, a place so desperate but water sound is a train whistle half a day off. Water's scent is a fresh wooden barrel pouring out the cool smell of damp forest into the hot mouth of hell. I cannot sleep in this darkness. I shouldn't be down in the mine with the women and children where I can't hear the raiding party, whether they've come or gone. I've faced down worse men, to put it plain. I'm good with a rifle, and true.
0: Voices at Twilight is going to be out when?
10: Voices at Twilight has a release date of June 15th.
0: Okay. And where will people find this if they would like to?
10: It's available for pre-order at the publisher's web- website, which is sastrugipress.com And it will be available from Amazon immediately on June 15th in regular book form and in about six months, it'll be out as an audiobook as well.
0: Lori how always nice chatting with you. Thank
10: you for stopping by. Thanks so much for having me, Bob.
0: Lori will be on tour this month as a Think Wyoming, Wyoming Humanities Council Road Scholar, teaching free creative writing workshops on the subject of water in Wyoming. Information can be found on the Humanities Council website.
1: Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you want to hear it again, you can find the entire show or individual segments at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also sign up for our podcast on the website or through iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor.
0: We invite you to submit ideas for future interviews and stories. We also urge you to like our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page, and you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.